it was just a stack of bad ideas. The bottom of the idea was I was sitting in a cave with Skylar. The second on top of that bad idea was we're in a, we're in a cave where you can only have one exit. Uh, third, it's 58 degrees outside. There's just layers of bad ideas. And so last week, Skylar and I went to Cherokee Caverns on Oak Ridge Highway, and they were showing Christmas Vacation in the middle of a cave. I don't understand it either. But my biggest question wasn't my judgment of going inside a cave, sitting in 58 degrees while they're watching a movie. My biggest question of judgment was as I watched the movie, and I've seen it before, but as I watched the movie, I just came to different parts of the movie and said, why did the author have to put that in the movie? And, and, and why did, <laughs> there's, there's uh, Skylar with Cousin Eddie, if you understand the movie, you'll, you'll get the reference. But back to the story, um, so the question at the end of, of watching the movie is kind of, you know, there would be scenes and I'd go, why'd they have to have that in the movie? Why'd the author have to put that in? Um, and then there'd be another scene, and I'd say, you know, I wish that had, that had not been in, because, and, and, and the good news is, for Skylar, most of it went over his head, but still, it was just, this is a funny movie. Why'd they have to include that? Why did the, and then there'd be a few more minutes, and you'd come up again, and you go, why'd they have to include that? And then that. Well, that's because the author's are trying to get your attention. I want to tell you, I've seen that movie a bunch of times. Maybe I should be embarrassed to admit that. And sometimes, because I'd seen it so many times, I tend to have forgotten some of the parts that I wish weren't in there. And it wasn't until I'm sitting in a cave with my son with, a, with the version that I said, oh my goodness, I, I didn't realize that was in there or that was in there. Now, What's that have to do with us this morning? Well, I'd suggest to you that so many times we have heard the story of Christmas. And it's become a nativity scene on top of our TV set. Or a, or a, or a nice Christmas carol. And we've heard all the different... We've, we've heard it so many times that we kind of forget. But there's some great questions you ought to ask this year as you hear the Christmas story again. Why did the author include that in the story? Why, why is that part in the story? Because unlike some Hollywood writer, the author of all of creation and the author of the word of God, the Bible, every detail matters. Every point matters. And sometimes when we hear it so many times, we, we just goes off our lips and we don't think about it. Well, we're going to look at a section this morning where an Old Testament prophecy that talks about something that you might say, why is that in the story? And the thing we're going to look at, or the issue we're going to look at, is the idea of the virgin birth. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I remember the first time I heard people talking about a virgin birth, and I remember having somebody tell me, well, you don't have to believe in that. Uh, the idea is just that, that God is, uh, that God's in the middle of everything. 
that didn't seem to ring true to what other people said to me about the Bible, and, but, I, but I've heard it so many times, and I've thought, why is that in the story? Why does it matter that God tells a story that includes something that's miraculous, something that's physically impossible, something that is a little odd, quite frankly? Why would God include such an interesting, unique detail in that story? And so this morning, I'd like to think about that with you. I'd like to think about how God told his story of glory and redemption to us, and he included some details that are worth noting. I think what you'll find is that the Christmas story is not just a small, truncated little story about shepherds and stables. But the story that we call the Christmas story, when you pull on the string, it goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And God was telling an amazing, detailed story from the beginning. All good authors, and he is an incredible author, all good authors, when they tell their story, will sometimes foreshadow what's going to happen next. Well, sometimes give a, a hint, a glimmer. Or sometimes when things are really, really difficult, he'll just, a good author will just leave a little bit of hope there. Well, you know where good authors got that? They got that from the grand author who has written the whole saga of life, the saga of redemption, the saga of creation, the author, our, Lord, our, our, our God. And so, this morning, I'd like to look at the story, the Christmas story, and look at that interesting piece about the virgin birth, and why is that important? And where do we first hear about it? Well, before we look at his word, before we talk about God, let's talk with him, let's pray together. Dear Father, could it be true that you have orchestrated everything? How would we come before you this morning if we believed that? Could, could it be that you are the grand author and that everything in our lives you have, that have come through to us through your nail-scarred hands? Could, could it be true that that you really are God with us. Father, you know every person in this room. You know the people struggling with cynicism. You know the people struggling with anger. You know the people that yelled this morning when they got up and things didn't work the way they were supposed to. You know every person here. And so would you meet us here this morning would you change us? We need transformation. We don't need to just try harder. We need new hearts, a new seed, a new humanity. And that's what you came to do. So, Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use our time together this morning and disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? 
and use it to equip us all for your glory and for your purposes. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at a prophecy about the virgin birth from the book of Isaiah. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background before we look at the passage together. You know the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived in Jerusalem in the, in the last 50 years before the exile. And his job was to be a prophet to a people that had turned their back on the covenants of God. And his book, the book of Isaiah, has two broad themes, judgment and hope. And in the beginning of the book, judgment is much stronger than hope, but he always leaves hope. Now, the people had turned their back on God. As you know, most of the kings didn't turn out very well. And Isaiah is to tell them to turn back, but they don't. And their hearts are going to harden, and Isaiah tells them that God is going to punish them. God, the, the consequences for their turning away from God's covenants is that they will be, that he'll take Assyria and eventually Babylon and bring judgment to them. Now, that's not a happy thing to tell people, but they turn their backs. And he even said, oh, and Isaiah is so full of metaphor and beauty. He even said that the, the people will be like, God's people will be like stumps that have been trees that have been cut, and just a stump in the field. And then, if that's not bad enough, it'll be like a burnt stump, twice killed. Nothing could come from that. In other words, you have no hope for life because it's, the tree has been cut, it's been burned. But then Isaiah says, that out of that will come a holy seed. <laughs> out of that will come a holy seed. Now the question at that point in Isaiah would be, who or what is that holy seed? Well, we find that out in the, in the very next section when Isaiah is told by God to go to a king. And he goes to the king he goes to is Ahaz. Now, just in case you thought, you may not remember this, but Ahaz was not a particularly good king. If you'd like to, to just write down a, a passage to look at later on, you might actually write down 1 Kings 22. I'll read it to you, and it's in verses 51 through 53. It's talking about um, Ahaz, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Josaphat, king of Judea. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he reigned two years over Israel. Now listen to this is this is his um, legacy, if you will. This is the king that Isaiah is about to speak with. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam, son of Naab, who led Israel to sin. He served Baal, false god and worshiped him, <coughs> excuse me, it's the microphone, and, and worshiped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. <coughs> excuse me. 
And so there's a, there's a picture of a, of a not good king. With Isaiah, a prophet of God who's about to tell a not good king um, about their legacy or what's going to happen. And so, <coughs> excuse me. And so um, here's what happens next. God asks um, Isaiah to go speak to him. And what's happening is there was a, a battle that, that he had won, but then the people that were, the, the two people, the two countries that were coming to take on, um, take them on, became, came together and they were scared, even to the point where the text says <coughs> that the people were shaking like, le- like trees in the wind. And so the picture is he's afraid for his future and in comes Isaiah. He's afraid for the future of his kingdom, but he's already turned his back on all of God's covenants and all of God's truth. He's, he's living uh, based on his, uh, his, uh, his thoughts and his ways and, and, and depending on his armies and to protect him. And in comes Isaiah. And let me pick up the story. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 7. I'm going to read 10 through 14. The main passage I want you to be aware of is, is verse 14. Because 14 is where God sows in the story the seed of hope. In the middle of a dark, dark night, in the middle of a, a desperate country that is going to go down like a, like a stump that's burnt. There's a, who is this nice woman? Thank you, honey. That's my wife. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call anybody else honey. Okay. That's better. Thank you. I apologize for, for all that. Um, so we're in Isaiah 7. You with me? Listen to the thread of hope in the midst of despair. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahab. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be as deep as shale and as high as heaven. So Isaiah is saying to him, hey, ask for a sign from God. But Ahab says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to test. Um, Ahab knew that the king was just playing with him. I mean, uh, uh, Isaiah knew that the king was just playing with him. He wasn't sincere because he hadn't cared about what God thinks at all. And so Isaiah says, Hear, O house of David, it is too little that you weary men. It's too little that you make mess other people's lives up, the people that are under your authority. But now you make God weary also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Listen to this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you, will sh- you shall call his name Emmanuel. Only the best of authors in the most unexpected places will put a thread of what's to happen. And in this moment, Ahaz was just thinking about himself and his kingdom. God had bigger plans. And he spoke to him directly about what was taking place there. 
But he also, he also told them about a sign. And he was, about, and he was telling about what that good seed, that holy seed coming from that stump would be. He was telling the story of Jesus. So you ask the question, why would God include in his story the idea of a virgin birth? Well, you could just go to Luke, and you can see the story in Luke 1, 34 through 37, when Mary finds out she's, she's been chosen, um, and, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is in her sixth month and she's been called barren. For nothing is impossible to God. So, maybe one reason for the story to include a virgin birth that's impossible is just to remind us throughout eternity that nothing is impossible without God. But I think there's some other reasons, and I want to I look at those reasons with you. Now, good theology should not just be something in our head. Good theology should change the way we walk, the way we live, the way we, we love one another. And there's the theology of the virgin birth. So let's ask the question, why did God include the virgin birth in the story of Christmas? And why does it matter? Well, first, I would suggest to you that it matters because of the sinless nature of Christ. What do I mean by that? In Romans 5, 12, it says that, that because... It talks about the idea of what theologians call original sin. It says that because Adam sinned, and the seed of Adam, everyone after him has that sin nature. And you think, well, that's not fair. Well, if you had been the first, you would have also been some of this sin. There's that nature in us for selfishness. There's that sin nature that, that moves us toward death instead of life, that moves us toward isolation instead of connection, that moves us away from God and to Focus just on ourselves. That's our sin nature. It's a sin nature that basically says, I'm not going to trust God with my life. I'll trust me. I'll take, I'll take my life into my hands instead of trusting God. I'll decide what's right and what's wrong. I'm not going to give that up to God or anybody else. See, that's our sin nature. It's a, it's a selfishness. It's a pride. And it is in you. You're born with it. It's, it's part of the curse of humanity. Once sin entered in, it, it followed the line from, from generation to generation to generation. In the Old Testament, you see that each generation made its own choices to, to be unfaithful to the covenants, but over and over again, there is no hope in that line because it is a line that's tainted by sin. There had to be a new seed. It's interesting, the same word that they used, that Isaiah used when he said there's a new seed in the stump. That seed comes from the line of David. And so you had to have a virgin birth so that, this, that, that sin nature of the first Adam 
is no longer in the child that's about to be born in the, in the, in the manger. And so the idea, and, and sometimes you'll hear people say, a first Adam and second Adam, referring to Jesus as the second Adam. What that's saying is, there was the first man, Adam, oh, but his lineage is a lineage of, of sin. His legacy is a, is a curse of selfishness that we all have as part of humanity. And so a new line needed to start. A new line, a, a new seed, a new seed, and that seed took place in the virgin birth. It started a new Adam. So the first thing you notice is a sinless nature of Christ. What difference does that make? The new Adam. Adam's disobedience set the stage for the requirement of a, something new. New Adam. What should that change about the way you and I live? Oh, there's a new Adam. It should give you hope for your future. It should give you hope. We live in a time of hopelessness. We live in a time where everybody's discouraged and everybody's cynical. The fact that there was a virgin birth and the God of the universe came and dwelt among us, that should give you hope. So the reality, the theology of a of a virgin birth, because of the sinless nature of Christ, gives you hope. Second, notice that because it's a virgin birth, it's a perfect sacrifice. Remember, it says in the Old Testament that, a, that the sacrifice had to be blemishless. There, there, it, it couldn't be a a tainted sacrifice. You remember in the Old Testament, the way they dealt with sin was with sacrifice. And, and the idea of blood is the, the Hebrew understanding of blood is that's where life comes from. And there had to be this, the giving of a life to, to, give, to, to forgive sin. And it had to be a perfect sacrifice. In order to take care of all the sins, it had to be something that was innocent so that it could take the, the guilt of our sinful nature. And so it had to be sinless. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. So what difference does it make that because it's a virgin birth, um, it allows him to not carry the sin nature and therefore it's a perfect sacrifice? What difference does that make? It makes you don't have to live in shame anymore because a perfect sacrifice takes care of all of your sin. Of all the sin of every person who belongs to him, you have not, if you are his child, you have not outsinned him because it's a perfect sacrifice. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in regret. Because a perfect sacrifice takes care of that. A perfect sacrifice allows me to live not in shame, but in a, in, 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 with, with gratitude and freedom. That says, I'm not my past. My past doesn't disqualify me. Oh, 
The virgin birth, it gives me a future and a hope. The virgin birth gives me a past I can let go of and a future I can grab onto. Oh, that's, that's why the author is writing such an odd scribble in the text that matters because it gives me a future. Let's me go of a past. What else does the virgin birth offer us? It says without question that all of this is of heavenly origin. That it's not man's ideas, it's not man's clever thinking, it's not our good thoughts. It's the heavenly origin of Christ. It speaks to the deity of Christ. Jesus is divine. It's not, there, there are religions, there are cults that believe that Jesus was just a man who lived a good life and therefore he's to be treated as God or that he was a good prophet. No. He was the incarnation of God himself. The God of the universe walked on our dusty roads. He he became the flesh, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the virgin birth says that was begun in heaven. It speaks to his divinity. It speaks to the fact that God is holy and Jesus is holy and he is God. That tells me I'm not alone. I mean, after all, what does Isaiah say his name is going to be? Emmanuel. Say that, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. We're not alone. We're not abandoned in, in, in our sorrow and our struggles. We're not, we're not abandoned. The divinity, this is, God originated this. Because of the virgin birth, you can live knowing you're not alone. You can live in relationship. That's his divinity. What else does the virgin birth teach us? Well, it speaks of God's Humanity. It speaks to the fact that Jesus is man. You see, the, the, the amazing nature of how can you explain, how can you explain to creation that Jesus can take care of it all because he's, unless he, you know that he's fully divine and fully human. And so how could you possibly draw that in creation? Well, if you're a, incredible author and creator, you draw it in this way, a virgin birth. And therefore, there's divinity at its core and it's humanity and it's divinity and it's humanity and somehow it's 100% both. And there, in the truth of a virgin birth is, a, is the fact that the God who came is a God who understands. 
because he's a God who understands suffering. He's a God who understands betrayal. He's a God who understands humanity. There's a, it's a God who's walked on our roads. He knows what relationships are like. He knows what betrayal is like. He knows what people not following through is like. He knows what your boss is like. He knows what your family is like. He knows what humanity is like. Without compromising in his divinity, He's a God who has humanity and therefore, therefore, he understands you and allows you to live with honesty. If he knows me and he knows my struggles, then I don't have to pretend anymore. I don't have to hide everything anymore because, because he knows. He's divine. Because of the virgin birth, he's also human. And I know that that's above our pay grade. And I know that may make your brain blow up. But it's true. And in the beautiful story that you've told, heard over and over again and started to ignore, there's the incredible beauty of divinity in humanity as a perfect sacrifice ordained by God coming together in a stable that is our only hope. So not only does the, not only does the virgin birth give me a future hope, allows me to let go of a past, not only does it remind me I'm not alone, I've, I can live in relationship not only does it allow me to live in confidence and honestly because of his humanity, it also, at the end of the day, reminds me of his sovereignty. That he is in charge. You know why you're anxious? Same reason I'm anxious. Same reason anxiety is kind of the common cold in America today. Anxiety is kind of based on the idea that I can't control the things that matter most to me. And you know, I can't control the things that matter most to me. I, 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 I want to make sure my wife's health's okay, and I want Skylar to be okay, and my daughter Kim to be okay, and I don't care much about her husband Noah, but, but Kim, I, I really want to be okay. I thought you, he's back there, and I just thought I'd say that, you know, just, uh, you know. I, I want Pierce to be okay and my new grandchild to be okay and, and I have no power to do anything about that. I can't fix that. I'd like the pandemic to go away. I'd like one of you not to get me sick. I'd like, I'd like to know that if I walk in with a mask, you won't be mad or if I don't walk in with a mask, you won't be mad. I'd like to know that the economy's not gonna actually blow up. I'd like to know that the culture's not gonna go crazy. I, I don't control any of that. Neither do you. That's why you're anxious. And so what do we do? We, we, can't, we, forget, we only fight battles we think we can win, so we get really worried about this and about this because we can't control the things that really matter. But what if we trusted the one who does control? What if we realized? What if we realized that sovereignty is not a theological concept, it's a reality of how to live it's not something to be debated by theologians. It's something to be absorbed by his children. 
And the virgin birth says to us that he is in control. Because it's something physically impossible. And how else does he let you know it's in, he's in control? Because he puts hints of it throughout Scripture. He, he, you pull on this thread and you get Genesis where it talks about the seed of a woman. And you, and you go all the way to Revelation and you just pull on the thread of this odd little point of the Christmas story. And you go, wow, this really has been ordained by God and he is sovereign. If he's sovereign, I can live less anxiously. You see, this little point in the story matters. God knew that it mattered, so he just put a hint of it in the Old Testament in a time that was really dark. He had Isaiah tell a king that wasn't very good that this isn't where the story ends. Told Ahaz, this isn't where the story ends. The story doesn't end with your kingdom falling apart. The story doesn't end with, with, with burnt stumps in a field. Because the story continues with a new seed of hope that comes out of that and that new seed of hope is created by a virgin birth. And because of that, because of that, you can let go of your past. You can hope for the future. You can live with confidence and with honesty. And you can trust a sovereign God. So this year, as you see the little nativity scenes and you, and you hear the songs, and you enjoy the Christmas trappings all around, may God allow you to hear the story in a new and fresh way. Because it's not just a happy little story of hope. It's a story at the very centerpiece of it is our only hope. That story is a story of a God who redeems creation back unto himself by becoming man and not losing his divinity, becoming the perfect sacrifice so that you and I could live. Merry Christmas. <laughs>